Good morning, family. Before I read scripture this morning, I wanted to thank our four-year-old Bible class this morning. As we, as we wrapped up um, our Bible class, they helped me prepare and practice God's Word today. We had the opportunity to, to thank the kids. They all got a sticker for bringing their Bible today. Um, and they also, we got a chance to talk about that it's God's inspired Word. Every time we open His Word, we get to speak the very breath of God. Thank you for your class. Today we'll be reading from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. It says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. But in three days later, he will rise. This is God's word. You may be seated. Please keep your Bibles open to uh, to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at scriptures uh, basically all over the place. But uh, if you open up to Mark, that'll be a good place to begin. And while you're getting your outline out, just a reminder to all of the guys, a special announcement for the, for the dudes among us, that uh, this Tuesday at noon, we're going to meet over in the fellowship hall for the men's monthly prayer luncheon. And uh, there's going to be kind of a special treat. Uh, the big treat is always we get to come together and pray with each other and pray for each other, pray for our church. Uh, the big uh, treat uh, this, this week is going to be that Phil Brown is going to be cooking. So no pizza. And I don't know what Phil's going to cook, but I know that it's M-E-A-T. And it's going to be awesome. But what we need is a count, an accurate count of the number of guys that are going to show up. So usually, in fact, this may be in, you know, a, a first in my 35 years of ministry. I'm going to ask you to send a text right now, guys. Uh, if you plan on being a part of that luncheon on Tuesday over in the fellowship hall where guys get together, encourage one another, pray uh, with each other and enjoy a meal, text John Skipworth right now. And then put your phone away. <laughs> and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the day, grateful for the song that you put in our heart, grateful for the songs that we can sing with our mouth. We're grateful for the reminder of the cross, and we're grateful for your word and grace and gospel. Bless us, Father, with eyes that see, ears that hear, so that we not only see clearly, but we never forget at what great cost our salvation and transformation in this life come. We pray this in the name of the Messiah, Jesus. Amen. Uber. Whoever thought you'd start a sermon off with talking about Uber, which is a taxi-hailing alternative in most of the cities and towns in the United States. Uh, recently, they put together some data, as any growing company will. They do a lot of uh, analytics. They kind of go at, uh, from different angles and levels, what's happening with Uber. And one of the things that they, uh, the, the, the nerds put together with Uber was uh, all the things that are forgotten in Uber cars. Believe it or not, it's more than just rings and cell phones and, and wallets and keys. They can even tell you in 2016 what was the most forgetful city in America. You want to guess? 
San Antonio is not right. We may be fattest, but we don't forget. <laughs> Los Angeles, believe it or not, uh, October 30th, the most forgetful day in 2016. First day of the week, more than anything else, there was a spike in lost wedding dresses. Third day of the week, Tuesday, lost bathing suits. Go figure. People forgetting these things. The unique items that have been left behind in the Uber vehicles include uh, skiing, uh, uh, ski poles, uh, a lobster. Somebody forgot a lobster. <laughs> a potted plant, an elf cutout, a Nintendo game, a money bag, and somebody left their violin. Lost, as you know, once you lose something and there's no chance of you getting back, what happens to it? Usually it becomes forgotten. One of the greatest experiences for a human being on the opposite end of the spectrum is to get a hug, which means when somebody embraces you like that, it means that you've not been forgotten. It means that this person is literally but also emotionally embracing you, which means that you're accepted. It means that you are recognized and that somebody sees you and that you are remembered. The word forgotten, though, on the other hand, is one of the saddest words in the English language, especially when it is applied to humans and not lobsters or ski poles or potted plants. To be forgotten means that you're omitted from somebody's life. Out of the memory banks, you are now erased and gone. To be forgotten that your presence no longer has an influence or an effect on anyone else. You, you're, you're lost in the past while everyone else is moving into the future. So what if we put together a list of human beings that are lost and forgotten in our world? Who would make that list? Who would make that list? People in prison? Probably. The homeless? Without a doubt. How about the mentally ill? The mentally ill. Or people that are suffering under the weight of addictions. How about widows? How about children? How about people that grieve? I remember um, some years ago when my father died. He, he died early on a Monday morning. Three days later, on a Wednesday night, I was in the fellowship hall for the uh, midweek at Mac Mill. And uh, I'll never forget uh, little Bethany West, who had been told by her parents uh, what I had gone through in, in losing a father. And I was sitting in a chair in the middle of our fellowship hall when uh, she came into that room and walked up to me, just this little wisp of a girl. And she put her arms around my neck and just held me and patted me on the back and held me. How about lost people? Two scriptures that infuse my life with hope each day are these. Luke chapter 19 says, For the Son of Man came to what? Seek. He's looking for lost people and to save the lost 
and, and Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we know his, his backstory, right? Running away from God, but God would not let him get too far down that road to Damascus without running him down and finding him and transforming him, saving him, all of that. And later in life, he's going to say, here's a trustworthy saying. You can take this to the bank. It's worthy of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. At, at the heart of my life and my faith and everything that I think about are three days. Are three days. And it begins in a garden. Our Messiah is in a garden called Gethsemane, the, 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 the olive press. And one of the things leading up to that that we read in the Gospels, our Messiah is unafraid to weep. He weeps for a dead friend by the name of Lazarus when he's in Bethany. He looks one day over the city of Jerusalem as tears are streaming down his cheeks. And on the night of his betrayal, Luke chapter 22, Jesus has tears for himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is crying his eyes out. He has talked frankly about his death, Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10 that was just read to us by, by Roger. He has talked very frankly and explicitly about his death to his disciples. But now the time to die has come and Satan is assaulting the Christ with all of his strength. The crucifixion and the time to bear the sins of the world has arrived. And Jesus struggles to flee that ordeal. Let the cup pass. He prays. But he will not flee from God. There is not one hint, not one hint that Jesus will try to resolve this issue, this wrenching issue, without reference to God. Jesus does not want to go on. But he wants to do the will of God even more. And so Jesus will yield to the will of God being done in his life. And there's strength that comes from heaven in the form of angels. And most of the time when we pray for the angels to come into our life, it is to help us to escape the suffering. These angels do not come to help Jesus to escape. The angels come to give him strength to keep suffering. These angels come to give him strength to keep struggling with the ordeal of the cup that only he can drink. The mission of God is not going to be resolved in the Garden of Gethsemane. The, the, the mission of God is going to be resolved on the cross of Golgotha. And so here comes the betrayer. Here come all of those arresters. Judas is the one who follows Jesus when it profits, but sells Jesus when it costs. The irony of that kiss that betrays. In the middle of the conversation, if that's what we can call it, there's a sword that is pulled and a human is wounded. And the one whose wounds will heal us, Isaiah says, will physically heal one more time as he is arrested. He's taken to the home of, of Caiaphas. The Sanhedrin has been looking for a way to dispose of the Messiah Jesus. Such a threat is he to their understanding. Now they have him where they want him, so they think the men holding him begin to mock him, which means that they're trying to break him down emotionally. 
They're trying to not just hurt his body, they're trying to hurt his mind. They're trying to hurt his heart. They're trying to diminish him and to belittle him. And on top of that, they take turns punching him in the mouth and beating him into the ground. There's a trial, judgment of condemnation. While all of this is going on, Peter is struggling with his faith. He's not remaining silent about his friendship with the Messiah and hope that he will not be associated with Jesus. He's actively denying any involvement whatsoever. And to give him sort of this, this, uh, this, this plausibility, he begins to call curses down on himself. He's separating himself from Jesus in order to protect himself from association with Jesus. This happens not once, but twice, three times, then a rooster crows. And now it's Peter's turn to cry. And he does so bitterly. Bitterly. Jesus is is taken to Pilate. He is the Roman in charge. He is the decider of what is supposed to happen in Jerusalem. And Pilate sees clearly that Jesus is not guilty and he wants to set him free. And besides all of that, his wife had begged him not to have anything to do with this event because of a dream that she had had the night before. But Pilate knows the political game. And he has Jesus beaten into the ground and into the dust and nearly killed under the Roman scourge whips. In no way does it placate the Jews. Jesus must die on the cross. And dying on the cross, dying by crucifixion, become one of the the, the many, just one more forgotten Messiah wannabes in Israel. The Messiah loses a popularity contest to a murderer. And to the cross, Jesus is condemned after being politically maneuvered there by the Jews. But all according to the will of God. Which leads us to Golgotha. Jesus is compelled by Roman tradition to carry his cross to the place of execution. Weakened as he is from exhaustion and blood loss and dehydration and the beatings. He just can't do it. A fellow by the name of Simon, Simon of Cyrene, is grabbed by one of the Roman toughs from the crowd to help Jesus with the burden of the temper. Mark says they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they crucified him. And there they crucified him between two robbers. And for three hours there is complete darkness over the land. And all of the people standing there, if they had any sensitivity whatsoever in their mind and soul, their minds would have hearkened back to an 8th century prophet by the name of Amos who says, In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. And I will make that time like mourning for an only son. 
and the end of it like a bitter day. And then there's the, the scream. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, probably the only Aramaic people in the West know. We know it in English, Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, say it with me. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus is not concerned about the pain of the thorns that have bitten into his head. He's, he's not concerned about the nails that have been driven into his limbs or the pain of exhaustion and slow suffocation, slow grinding asphyxiation. His screams are about being forsaken and about being forgotten. He has not only taken the punishment but the sentence that we deserve because of our crime against God's good creation, He has taken what we deserve on Himself. And so Peter, who had denied Him, and has wept, and has repented, and still unsure of so much of the kingdom that's unfolding in front of Him, what does it mean? Watches from a distance and never forgets the sight. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And then quoting Isaiah says, by his wounds we've been healed. And Jesus breathes his last in the most sensitive man who ever, ever lived dies which brings us back to a garden one of the unsung heroes i think of these days joseph of arimathea is a member of the very council that condemned jesus to death he comes he asks pilate for the body of jesus pilate is surprised not just that this man would come and ask him for the body but that after the crucifixion that he you know he had died so quickly and when the confirmation comes of the fact that jesus did indeed die he gives the body to joseph and john tells us that the place where jesus was laid was in a tomb that had never been used in a garden you know when somebody's been convicted of a of a crime against our society he is uh, incarcerated, and he's put in chains, and he's put into a cell, and that door is locked. But after a period of time, if his sentence allows it, those doors, those bars that form the door that impedes him from being free is opened up, and he's able to walk out a free person. And it's early on that Sunday morning that there's this earthquake stone in front of the tomb is rolled back and like a condemned man having paid the price having paid the sentence he walks out of that tomb resurrected he doesn't hit death and just bounce back into life he pushes through death to the other side 
to the place, to the, to the resurrection where death itself becomes forgotten as eternity speeds into the future. We talk a lot about the great reversals that you find in the teachings of Jesus. If you want to be first, what do you need to be? Last. If you want to be great, what do you need to be? A servant. One of the other great reversals that we've seen in Scripture is that the thing that heals us of our sins, His wounds. His wounds. By His wounds we are healed. One of the other great reversals is that His end becomes our beginning. There is, uh, in the most popular game of all time, Monopoly, this little card that says, Get out of jail free. And, you know, you, you play that game enough, you begin to feel that maybe there are some get out of jail for free cards in life. Uh, there's a story happened in, in Minnesota. There was a, a guy that uh, was, was driving along and uh, turned out that he didn't have his seatbelt on. It was spotted. He was pulled over. Turns out that uh, not only was he not wearing a seatbelt, but there was also a warrant that had been issued for this guy's arrest. And so, you know, he's about to go to jail, and he reaches into his pocket very gingerly and pulls out, no joke, true story, pulls out a get-out-of-jail-free card and hands it to the officer. You can't make this stuff up, can you? <laughs> Human beings are broken. Just saying. In this life, there are no get-out-of-jail cards for free. Grace means that we receive our salvation for free, but our sin costs. Our sin costs. And because our sin costs, there is a penalty that needs to be paid. Grace does not mean that everything just gets forgiven. What it means is that the Messiah, Jesus, took our sins upon himself, and by the wounds that he suffered on that cross, we are healed. His death means life for us. And so Paul will say he saved us. And he's called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. One of the things I, I, I ponder from time to time is when I see uh, Christians who seem to go through the motions of their faith. And the question I have why are your arms not around his neck hugging him? And the answer is, I think, in part, because we are not amazed at his arms around our neck saying, you're found and you're embraced 
and you're not forgotten. Which I think is at the very core of hell. Hell is described in so many different ways in Scripture, but none of those are as frightening to me as hell is that place where there is no chance of God ever coming for you. That's why we offer an invitation at the end of of every message to give you an opportunity in knowing what the gospel is about and knowing what is offered to you who in knowledge of who you are and what you're possible of doing in this life or what you have already done in this life, knowing that you are not in God's creation perfect, but have created in part the misery have created the pain and the suffering like everyone else who has ever lived. There's that that point in which you realize that all of that in his ending of life on the cross becomes my beginning of a new life, of being a new creature, of being a new creation, of living life over, and not just living life over, but living it forever. We're going to have these shepherds down here at the front. If there's anyone here this morning that understands, I mean really understands what it is that is being offered in the gospel, come down and ask these shepherds about it as we stand and praise God together.